Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month's Partisan Gardens is all about the Farmer's Almanac, specifically the 2022 Earthbound Farmer's Almanac. Our listeners are probably familiar with the old Farmer's Almanac, with its planting charts, weather forecasts, and random tidbits of folksy wisdom and jokes. It's an artifact of an earlier time, probably not the first place our listeners go to decide what to plant or when to plant it. The Earthbound Almanac, on the other hand, is situated in the present moment. Last year, we dedicated an episode to their first almanac, and we encourage you to listen to that, too. We'll let the almanac speak for itself. Here's this year's back cover. Quote, This is a farmer's almanac for the end of the world. We glimpsed one such world emerging after the storm last summer, as people in the darkened city gathered around generators and grills to share the brief abundance from their thawing freezers. The crises all around us and the attempts by the ultra-rich to flee the earth entirely make clear that none of the reigning institutions will make any effort toward our survival. The way forward out of this mess will mean charting a new course informed with black and indigenous knowledges developed through generations of struggle against land theft and enslavement. We will have to work together, constructing and reconstructing the ability to sustain and care for each other. This almanac is developing the necessary knowledge, infrastructure, and practices. In a moment when so many are refusing exploitative work, whether by striking, quitting, slacking, calling in sick, or lying flat, it feels both more urgent and more possible than ever to reclaim the joy and value of our work as meaningful. The old Farmer's Almanac presented conventional wisdom. This almanac is a place for experimentation, for finding new forms and retrofitting old ones, for sharing stories of lived efforts toward a collective exit from this colonial nightmare, this separateness from the earth. So for today's episode, we're taking you on an audio tour of the Almanac, less like an audiobook and more of an interpretation and an exploration based on the Almanac. We'll have a few readings from the book, along with a couple brief interviews with some of the authors of those pieces. We'll start with a horoscope featured for our current sign, Taurus. No one is coming to save you, so show up to yourself. Choose hope, California poppy, when grief feels threatening. Gently lead others to hope and watch grief gently leave your body. Power will be found in intellectual excitement and idea exchange. 
Don't commit to that which does not fill you with joy. Time is on your side, so take time moving through movements of rituals that set the stage for a manageable future. Nothing for yourself that is not for others, meaning what you build will be best supported by your community and support your community. Pickle something this year and share the extra. Look to the sky when you feel lost and remember to relax your shoulders. Passionately engage with yourself and then expand. Give ideas actions. Give alone time intentional joyful structure. Look to love and lead with love. And next, we'll have the editorial note from the Earthbound Farmers Almanac Collective, followed by readings and interviews from the book. In 2021, the winds rose. In winter, they descended from the pole, carrying sleet and ice that shellacked our fruit trees and ruptured power infrastructure. We felt cautious hope in springtime, planting seeds, collecting rain, inoculating logs and limbs. Then heat domes gave way to summer breeze, blowing wildfires from caribou to Coahuila. As the hills, forests, and settlements burned, commerce swelled, and humanity sowed 10 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Autumn's approach whipped up winds in the Gulf, lifting waters over sinking lands, ripping off neighbors' roofs, and toppling more corporate energy infrastructure. We found our gardens and nurseries ruined, and at moments, our resolve scattered with the shingles. As the year closed, the wind rose again, etching finger streaks into the continent which crushed factories and warehouses, and igniting the plains and suburbs with a bitter whisper. It has subverted the power structures of the old world into catastrophe, and blown some of us into new fellowships and alliances. We continue sinking into the feeling that two years into COVID, we're still at the beginning. Our weather forecast for 2022 says the Earth will be no more hospitable than last year. We will have further cause to consider December as either late summer or early spring. The litany of climate anomalies and disasters will grow longer beyond anyone's ability to recount. But of course, the Earth owes us no hospitality or temperateness. What do we owe the Earth? The 2022 Almanac doesn't try to answer this question, which is already perverted by the language of currency and debt. Our times demand that we break from rigid economic relationship with our home and instead enter into dialogue with it. In dialogue, we can discover, experiment, and propagate what other forms of relationship can exist and have existed. The pieces within demand space for listening and for speaking, whether among humans or between us and the various plants, fungi, animals, microbiota, lands, and waters that have been our sources for both sustenance and conflict. We still have a lot to learn about what our roles will be. Tafkinto. Fighting Ecological Collapse and Colonial Violence Through Mapuche Rituals of Exchange by Mapuche Woman Collective Petu Mongalayin Yanakeo with an introduction by the translator Nicola Garcia. Translator's Introduction For over 500 years, the Chilean state has waged war against Mapuche indigenous communities, forcing them onto increasingly small reservations in southern Chile, while selling their land to large-scale landholders, 
with several of the richest Chilean families included among them. In recent decades, Mapuche communities have adopted direct action to regain their ancestral territories and defend their access to resources through land occupations. In response, the Chilean government has turned to militarized policing to surveil Mapuche communities and defend these large-scale landholders. These landholders have entered the lucrative forestry plantation industry causing large-scale ecological devastation within the Mapuche territories. Now facing prolonged droughts and fire seasons, Mapuche communities continue to turn towards traditional knowledge and practices to ensure their community's resilience while fighting the Chilean state and extractive industries. The collective Petu Mongaling Yanakeo, formed by a network of Mapuche women living in the city of Temuco and the surrounding rural Mapuche communities, have begun to fight for Mapuche food sovereignty through organizing traditional Mapuche exchange events called Trafquinto. The Trafquinto represents a collective instance where the potential for knowledge and traditional wisdom is put into action. The Mapuche language terms, in the language called Mapunungun, have been kept in this text, and a glossary has been included at the end of the written version. Trafquinto, or Trafquin, exchange or the art of exchanging, is an ancient political cultural practice that still prevails both in the lof and reservations, and today is also carried out in the city where different lamien can gather from rural territories. Its main role is food and economic sovereignty, as seed varieties can be exchanged, each with different origins and forms of cultivation. There's also the exchange of crafts such as weaving, clay, natural medicine, foods, and plants. The Collective Yanekeo is a network of women from different territories of Almapu, with anti-colonial principles and a commitment to anti-extractivist, anti-patriarchal, and anti-neoliberal practices. This network has been growing for over a year, but we decided to publicize the collective on October 12, 2021, Indigenous Peoples Day. And we started with a public statement on our Instagram page. We saw it necessary to develop an organizational model against this patriarchal neoliberal system through forming our collective since there's currently no Mapuche organizations that have fought against gendered violence in the Mapuche context, either in the LOFs, the clans, Reducciones, the reservations, or within organizations related to the Mapuche struggle. In discussions about what activities we could carry out post-pandemic, one of our collective's founders had the idea to organize street fairs and exchanges. Together with the Lamien of Zomo Chapetewe, a Mapuche organization against gendered violence, we decided to begin calling for public autonomous street markets and exchange events in different plazas in the city of Temuco. At each event, we all come together with our different products and craft work, and at the same time hold workshops, discussions, sales, and chafkin between the sisters who attend. In Mapundungan, the term LOF refers to a kin network. And in the LOF reservations, there's a struggle against this neoliberal state, which defends the forestry companies through militarized means, which they call a state of siege. These struggles are occurring where Pulamien, sisters and brothers, are without the land and water they need to exercise Mapunche Mongen, Mapuche living. This is a historical conflict over 500 years old. And currently, we are seeing the effects of historic usurpation by the Chilean state. People have no places to plant, 
no place to build their houses, no place to keep their animals. In several territories, there is no water, no lawen, medicinal plants. The Tafkin is a form of survival today and a form of resistance for economic, political, and cultural sovereignty. It presents an alternative to what the neoliberal system imposes on us through money, the Chilean peso, and the devaluation of alternative forms of exchange related to our culture, like the Tafkin. The right to freedom is a common good, as well as the right to water, air, and free territories. For all beings who embrace life and well-being, creating anti-neoliberal contexts to exchange of knowledge, crafts, skills, and food is a very good way to decolonize our spaces and networks. Next is their public statement announcing the formation of their collective. Petumongeleyin Yanekeo. Quote, In these dates of pain, we bring message from us Pulamien for our Amapuche people, against the Chilean state and all the colonialist states of Abyayala that after 200 years continue to exercise occupation over our lands, plundering and mistreating our bodies and territories. Kinye, one, our cries are loud and clear. We are organized, regrouping our Pusomo Nawen, feminine energy, against the extractivist violence of the states and the business community. Mate, Angelini, Luxig, Saie, Piñera, Yarur, the richest families in Chile, including the former president of Chile. We know who they are and we are not afraid. We seek the decolonization and the total deoccupation of our spaces and territories by the invading Winca state, invading Chilean state. Epu, two. We call for the total liberation of our Walmapu to recovery through Kuifi Gimun, Kuifi Rakiswam, old knowledge and wisdom, to full and just duality. We fight for a reliable interpretation and application of the Asmongen, ethics of living. Our message to Puwenchu Pulamien, friends, brothers, and sisters, is to be Gomeshe, good people, Nyorkshe, ethical people, and Rexhe, authentic, both in our ruka, or our homes, and in public. We are here for the act of defense of our Ichufil Mongen, the recovery of our Nyatue Kanyatun, communal spaces and ceremonies, the active and dignified participation in the uprising of our Pumashi, Punyenpin, La Wenyelu, Nyulam Tu Chefe, spiritual leaders, wise teachers, traditional healers, and land spirits among other legitimate former positions that continue to rise, and we will accompany them in all our territories. We are in solidarity with the recuperation of territory in the Waria, the city, as well as in the Walmapu, Mapuche territories. Gula, three. As Pusomo, woman, for territorial autonomy, we do not want our dignified historical struggle as a people to be used for electoral campaigns, reformist and unrepresentative of the autonomous work and struggle that is carried out in the Walmapu, 
We do not want more quote-unquote Mapuche reference with Winca, Chilean, ideals. And we do not trust nor endorse any reformist state process. We are attentive to the cultural appropriation of Araki Swam, Café and Tun, knowledge and belief. Meli, four. As Busomo, we will confront, in every way necessary, the colonial patriarchal violence exercised by the Chilean state and also by Mapuche and Chilean men within our lof, clans, organizations, spaces of struggle, etc. We will not accept any more colonization practices such as rape, abuse, harassment, state violence, and extractivism in our territories, bodies, and those of our pichiqueche, young children. We will not accept abusive leaders and authorities, whoever they may be. Quechua, five. This is a declaration of war to the patriarchy in the state of Chile, but also the people who claim to be our quote-unquote Wenchu Lamien, brothers and sisters, and exercise physical, economic, psychological, and sexual violence against our women and children. Those who abandon and do not recognize Pichiqueche abandon them to be raised by both Mapuche and Namapuche Lamien. We repudiate those who abuse alcohol and drugs within our lof. We must recognize the serious consequences and all the associated problems that bad consumption generates. We cannot preach like the politicians of the hegemonic power about freedom and nonviolence if they exercise this power within our Somo Lamien, Ka Somo Wenui, sisters and friends. Cayo, six. To our leaders, spokespersons, public persons, and quote unquote, Weichafes, warriors, questioning the internal organizations of the autonomous Waimapo movement. We speak to you and we call upon you to question your practices, effective relationships, daily politics, and to reflect, talk, and demand that within your organizations there is no room for Lamien who mistreat, abuse, lie, and look down on our Somo Lamien through hierarchical and abusive actions, both with Wechuka Somo. Enough ignoring of reality. Silence is complicity. Lamien, our call is to set a worthy example of Mapuche. The young children. To be at the height of the anti capitalist conflict and be anti neoliberal, anti extractivist, and anti patriarchal. The Lamien of the Walmapu, we are not alone. We are one with the Itrofil Mongen, the life interconnected with nature, and we will take the legitimate path to self defense. Petu Mongolein. Mulfun Yanakeo Peu 2021 Walmapo Shmita year Cycles of time are central to Jewish life. Jewish rituals follow a certain rhythm which defines the significance of time. Just as Shabbat, a prescribed day of rest, occurs on each seventh day of the week, 
Jewish festivals like the Jewish New Year and Hanukkah punctuate the year. Less known, but no less central to Jewish cycles of time, is the Shemitah year, the year of release, or sabbatical year. The Jewish learner calendar year 5782, from September 2021 to September 2022, is a Shemitah year. According to biblical texts, the Shemitah year is the seventh year of a seven-year cycle in which the Jewish people would observe a year of solemn rest. In the Torah, God tells Moses the children of Israel will farm the land for six years, and in the seventh year the land and the farmers will rest. Any crops that grow of their own accord and all perennial foods will be made accessible to everyone. No one can own or sell anything. After seven cycles of Shemitah, the 49th year will be a jubilee year, where all plots of land will revert to the original owner. Therefore, no one will be landless. There will be no real landlords or tenants, only people with a 50-year rent agreement. The land itself cannot be owned, for in reality it belongs to God. The Torah illustrates one way to observe Shemitah, which was easily applied within the agricultural context of the time. People were generally more nomadic and subsisted from the land. Farmers could prepare for the Shemitah year by storing food and ensuring the growth of food forests in order to sustain the community throughout the year. Now in the year 5782, how does one observe Shemitah? Translating the tradition of Shemitah into a time where not everyone farms and not everyone can afford to take time away from work does pose certain challenges. The tradition of Shemitah offers an opportunity for the observer to do something different for one whole year. The seven-year cycle compels us to prepare for whatever the year of release may bring, to set an intention that the seventh year will be different. Shemitah is not just about farming and agriculture. It is about our relationship to the land and allowing it to rest, a biblical prescription for environmental sustainability. Shemitah is also about social equality, opening up markets and making food and land available to all. It also defines a time for rest and a time for work, allowing for cycles of productivity and respite. Finally, Shemitah reinforces the idea that the land cannot be owned, for it was God who gave the land to the Israelites and created the conditions necessary for life. We are living in a world with COVID-19, climate chaos, political and social instability, and unbridled capitalism. That this year is a Shemitah year feels particularly significant, as we are being called to do something different. Shemitah does not necessarily offer answers to solving these specific problems outright. However, the practice does afford some sense of intentionality around our relationship to land and to each other, a relationship that is more equal and reverent. Interpreting Shemitah can and should be a personal endeavor, for in order to make change happen, we must start with ourselves. My name is Jacob. 
and I run the space that we're in right now with my wife Maggie. It is called Too Tall Farm and Nursery. We're a regular for-profit business selling plants, but we try to engage as much as we can in uh, different mutual aid projects and growing plants out for stuff like that and giving them away and all that kind of thing. And we are situated on a larger scale in New Orleans, in South Louisiana. So what I wrote about and most of what we do is more kind of tailored to the Gulf South environment and, uh, and our hot summers and all that stuff. Sweet. And um, what is the title of the piece that you're going to read? Why don't you just say the title and then you can just jump in with reading the piece and we'll follow up with some questions afterwards. Okay. Uh, the piece is called How and Why to Grow Squash in the Gulf South by Jacob. Living as we do in such a climate-vulnerable part of the world, we have an opportunity to be at the forefront of developing new ways of gardening and of breeding resistant crops that will be of use to a huge and increasing amount of the world's population. As the waters rise, we will need crops that can tolerate flooding and salt intrusion. As the temperatures increase, we will need crops that are disease and pest resistant, since without any killing frosts, pests and pathogens will be endemic. With increased and intensified storms each year, we will need crops that can quite literally bounce back from hurricane winds, or else whose growing season skirts the stormiest parts of the year. Importantly, we will need crops with as much genetic diversity as possible, so that they are resilient and adaptable, able to acclimate to particular regions and conditions, and then just as easily to change again as the weather changes. We need to decolonize our gardens, not necessarily in the sense of rejecting all non-indigenous crops out of hand, but by removing the Euro-American-centric parameters of what we, quote, ought to be growing, and then taking a meaningful look at our actual local conditions and needs, and then planting accordingly. This will mean growing indigenous American crops like melons and beans, as well as Southeast Asian crops that grow well in the humidity, African crops that can tolerate high temperatures, and crops from Central and South America that are, in many cases, the more tropical cousins of North American varietals with which we may already be familiar. We will need to experiment and learn different techniques of growing, both new and ancient, but we can start by looking at what vegetables are available and asking ourselves how they can best be matched to our needs. We turn now to squash. The entirety of the cucurbita, or squash genus, is indigenous to the Americas. Among the different species within cucurbita, there are four that are commonly grown for food, and with which most of us are passingly familiar at least. Uh, and they are cucurbita pepo, C. maxima, C. mixta, and C. moscata. These are commonly known respectively as zucchini, hubbards, kusha, and butternut. Some are grown as summer squash and eaten while they are young and tender, whereas others are winter squash, which are left on the vine to maturity, and develop tough outer shells and can be stored over the winter. Beyond this, to most people, squash is just squash. It should be remembered, however, that these different species are each very much their own distinct plant, which evolved in its own corner under its own distinct conditions. As such, they of course have their own needs and preferred climates. Such a simple fact can be so easy to lose sight of when one has been completely alienated from the food one eats. It is that last species, C. moscata, the butternuts, which is of interest to us now. The various squash within this species are generally tolerant of our hot, humid summers, as well as being more resistant to pests, such as the ubiquitous here in New Orleans, vine borer. 
In addition to the well-known butternut squash, the species also contains varieties such as tromboncinos, calabazas, and some, but not all, pumpkins. Again, it is the last that is of interest to us. Of the many varieties of C. muscata, the Seminole pumpkin is one of the best suited to our local environment. Seminole pumpkins are native to the swamps of Florida, where they were cultivated by indigenous peoples and trellised over dead trees, from whose limbs the little pumpkins would hang. Although they share a common name with the Seminole people of the area, they in fact have a long history of cultivation and consumption by a number of local tribes, including the Miccosukee, Creek, and Calusa peoples. The pumpkins themselves are smallish and fleshy, round where they grow on the ground, and pear-shaped where they grow hanging from trees or trellises. The flesh is slightly sweeter than that of the better-known butternut squashes, but in most regards is much the same. The vines grow bountifully in our Gulf South environment, few pests, little disease, and enormous amounts of robust, reaching vines. They are not a plant well-suited to small spaces, but they thrive in neglect and can be direct-seeded in unused lots or less accessible side yards, or as cover for exposed soil. The leaves of their vines are struck through with silvery patterns, a defense mechanism evolved to mimic the marks of deficiencies and illnesses that pests and predators know to avoid. To humanize, the effect is appealing, a sparkling variegation in a sea of green. Add to this the massive yellow blossoms and orange, green, white, or cream-colored fruit, and the effect is quite striking. Importantly, there is a high degree of genetic diversity among seminal pumpkins, which does some amount of our work for us in our aim of selectively breeding to complement our local climatic conditions. Of course, this is not a project for isolated households to go out on their own. To begin, we will sow our seeds and observe our results, but from there we can share that information, be it in a spreadsheet or by word of mouth, and trade the seeds we have saved from our hardiest plants and meatiest fruits. We can take note of most successful planting dates and conditions, and even start cross-pollinating by hand for other desirable traits. Once we have learned something about how and where best to grow the pumpkins, we can cooperate to dedicate the most appropriate yards or vacant lots to pumpkin production, and move on to other crops in other yards by much the same process. This is not something that will come naturally within the systems of power as they stand. Capital demands the largest profits and the widest margins at all times. If a new relationship is to be forged between ourselves and the food we produce, it will be done in our own communities, outside of capital and state apparatuses. For now though, let's begin by looking squarely at what we plant and why, and making alterations where appropriate. Much of the world is going to look much like the low-lying swampy region we call home, prone to flooding and hurricane winds, and today is a great day to start thinking about how we will grow. So I just want to start out with a couple of questions that are kind of specific to Seminole pumpkins um, okay. and how to, how to grow them, um, and then move into some, maybe some more philosophical questions. Sure. Um, so I, when you were reading, I was thinking about, um, I guess, I think a lot of people who listen to this probably won't be living here in the Gulf South, but hopefully a lot of them will, but, but um, probably a lot of them won't. And so I was curious, how far north does it make sense to grow Seminole pumpkins? How far north does it make sense? Yeah, I mean, or, or in, what environmental conditions should people be looking for to, to, to grow them? 
Um, that's a great question. Uh, you're not gonna encounter like a line above which all of a sudden it doesn't make sense to grow them. And uh, people in more northern climates, I'm sure, are aware that they, you know, they grow squash now. And and kind of the point that I'm making here is uh, is just to because you can grow pretty much, you can grow squash anywhere. Um, but is just to be thoughtful about, is this the best suited squash to be growing? So how far north can you be growing them? Uh, I imagine into Canada, probably, like I think way up there, um, because most of what I find super exciting about them is, uh, is their sort of, uh, what am I trying to say? They're resilient to problems that we have with squash down here. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you're not gonna reap those same benefits that I talk about of like uh, being resistant to vine borers if you're in a climate that doesn't have vine borers or you're not gonna reap the benefits of, oh, they can take super high humidity if you're somewhere that doesn't have high humidity. I imagine you can probably grow them pretty much anywhere. It just may not be, uh, as I say in the piece, the the best suited squash available to you you know it may be that you're in a spot where it makes sense to be growing your your zucchinis or what have you right okay so there, you might have better options depending on whether you're maybe you're further north of here or further south of here there, mm -hmm. there might be other options that you like in the piece you encourage us to take uh, i think you sit, you call it a meaningful look at at our actual local conditions and needs and then planting accordingly um I'm guessing, I'm, or I'm gonna, I'm, I'm curious if you have any, like, sort of specific questions people can ask about where they are and what their growing conditions are. Like, how can they start to think about what would work where they are? Like, what are the questions that 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 make the Seminole mm -hmm. pumpkin the answer here, mm -hmm. as far as squash goes? One of the biggest things I would encourage people to do is to take their own experience seriously and the problems that they encounter and stuff rather than, um, you know, so much of the materials that are available will be written for, you know, the Pacific Northwest or like Maine, there's a lot, you know, so rather than trying to, okay, I saw in a book that this is supposed to be my experience is supposed to go like this and these are supposed to be the problems that I encounter and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, um is to yeah just look at actually what happens like okay well did that happen for you or uh were you unable to grow any squash because of fine borers or um you know did did the timing work out the way that that book said that it was going to or does such and such a fruit take longer to mature where you are so a lot of it is is yeah is basically just in that and uh and not i think that all of us would say that we understand we not to hold ourselves to like high or inappropriate expectations but then i still just see it happening a lot in gardening uh of like wanting it to look like the farm on instagram or whatever it is you know like tomatoes down here are really hard and they're especially really hard to grow them the way and at the time that all of the materials you find are going to tell you to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, like, I mean, I sell plant starts for a living and people still want to buy tomatoes in June or to my tomato starts, I mean. Um, but uh, 
even though they have tried over and over again and know it's not working for them, but they're convinced, you know, they tell me like, oh, I have a black thumb, I kill everything, all this kind of stuff. But it, it's, they're, they're just holding themselves to not only an obsession with tomatoes, which I, I could have a whole other podcast about, but uh, what, yeah, holding themselves to expectations of this is how it's supposed to happen. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to put them in at this date. I'm supposed to be eating them during the summer. All of this kind of thing. You talk about this idea of decolonizing our gardens, which I think in the piece you say means not necessarily in the sense of rejecting all non-indigenous crops out of hand, but by removing the Euro-American-centric parameters of what we ought to be growing and taking a meaningful look at our actual local conditions and needs and then planting accordingly. So I'm curious, then, like, what, is a, what does a typical colonized garden look like like, what's the colonial idea of what a garden should be? Could you expand a little bit on some of the some of the problems with that and some of the other ways that we can kind of sure. move out of that? Mm -hmm. I think there's several different ways to take that. I mean, mostly what I'm referring to in the piece, and I don't want to be too harsh on people because it's not like I think that these people who want to buy these tomato plants from me have made some kind of conscious decision to, like, I don't know, I'm growing a European garden or whatever. I mostly just mean, as with so many things, there's just like a hegemonic idea of this is the standard. This is what is normal. This is what is sold in grocery stores. Western European cuisine, while there's nothing wrong with it, is standard normal cuisine. And anything you do outside of that is like adventurous or or whatever. So I guess what I mean is just what we ought to be doing is just kind of decentering that, you know. And if if what you want, and let's not forget also that tomatoes are a <laughs> crop native to this continent. I don't mean to say that they aren't. Rather than accepting that framing of these are your these are your starter plants. Everyone grows tomatoes and peas and zucchini and like those are the easy things. Those are the normal things. You know, there's plant nerds out there that grow wilder stuff than that or whatever, but like this for some reason is where you should start. This for some reason is what is easiest, even though the facts on the ground just don't line up with that without looking around at, at, what, at what's actually happening around you, what the, what the actual climatic conditions, like I say in the piece, are, mm -hmm. uh, what your actual experience with what you, were, what you were successful with, what you weren't successful with, the species of squash that I talk about in the piece, or the genus of squash rather, is indigenous to the Americas. But like I say in the piece, when I say decolonizing, I don't mean just rejecting out of hand anything that, that isn't indigenous. Um, and you know, a good example of that would be like, uh, if, if you wanna go further, like outside of that genus of squash, you know, there's stuff like, uh, what down here is called gagutsa, otherwise known as kukuzi squash, or or also merletons, you know, um, both of which are 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 cucurbits in outside of those genuses um, of the normal like grocery store squash, and they are from Eurasia, you know, they they came this direction in the Colombian exchange, but. They are really, really well suited to our conditions down here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why there is, you know, a healthy tradition of, of growing them. Grow what makes sense, grow totally. what works, grow what you get a high yield from, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. So it sounds to me like a little bit what you're saying when you say decolonize the garden is like 
pay attention to where you are and what works there like pay attention to it being in an actual place in, yes. in yeah yeah i think that like such a big part of colonization is just that that putting a sort of one size fits all system onto something mm-hmm. that was concocted a million miles away by people who have never set foot there have no idea um and just imposing that mm-hmm as this sort of like universal solution or universal schema or whatever when um, anybody from such and such a place could have come up with a better schema. Totally. Yeah. The inhabitants of so-called New Orleans live as a constant reminder of the stakes of building a civilization at odds with the enormous powers of the Mississippi River, the Gulf of Mexico, the skies, the marsh, and the swamp. These powers are both life-giving and life-taking. Colonists and capitalists, frightened of the latter, sought to devise a scheme to protect themselves and their industrial interests. A year before the founding of New Orleans, they set to the task of constructing levees to keep the river out of their new development. In doing so, the colonists sought to violently establish linear time in a place that had never experienced such nonsense. This mile-long wall along the river was a catastrophic failure in the face of a flood of significant magnitude by measure of recent indigenous memory. The year 1718 acts as a point of reference with which to orient progress from, a beginning from which all horizons, no matter how malevolent or benevolent, project from. As the cycles of the river's rising waters and the hurricane furies of the gulf sought to remind these new permanent residents, the natural world would not be tamed by the dogma of progress. Well known and respected by the lands and waters' original inhabitants, the gift of life here is a reciprocal one, one where giving and taking is mimicked by the form of the water rising up the river's banks and the bayou sloughs. This is a lifeway that acknowledges cycles and difference therein, the lifeway of Bulbancha, that place without borders, colonized time, and definition. From where we are today, we could say that which existed before New Orleans, and many would say still exists here among us. In contrast, the world being constructed by settlers aimed to deny these cycles, and enforce a stasis. With the natural world fully subdued, the colonizer was afforded the comforts necessary to replace reciprocity with transaction. Respect for the gift was put aside by the supremacy of paper money, taking what was needed put aside for extraction and efficiency. As pipelines, oil derricks, and canals popped up all over land and sea, the river was levied, the back swamp drained, and flood walls reinforced. The functions of extraction, logistical flow, and housing markets were secured by the proclaimed function of protection of the vulnerable population. In the 300-something years of linear time that has passed since Bulbancha was colonized, an abundance of rich cultures have grown and flourished in spite of settler colonialism and the slave plantation monoculture the region's wealth rests on. What has come to be known as American culture comes from the drumming and dancing in Congo Square, gumbo cooked in the shanty homes of enslaved families, and the African woodworking techniques that built the the French Quarter. Every year, throngs of tourists descend upon this most creole of cities to see that culture, giving veracity to the claim that there is something here to be protected. We are forced to beg for our protection. 
As the city sinks in some places over 10 feet below sea level and the swamps and marshes surrounding the city have been pillaged and allowed to wash away, we can seemingly only demand higher walls to protect us from the onslaught brought on by progress. In a unified chorus, New Orleanians of all stripes ask the state and its Army Corps of Engineers to continue to guarantee protection, that promise endowed upon those whom the state considers citizens. But even the most generous progressive forecasts don't include protection for perpetuity. This culture of begging endangers us all, but it is not our only option. Life outside of state protection, and often in spite of it, has long been a matter of survival. Deep in the swamps and marshes, cultures of Marin resistance and fugitivity flourished in combat with and desertion from the social death of chattel slavery. This legacy lived on by the waters of Lake Bourne in the autonomous village of St. Malo, named in honor of the Maroon Bandit by Filipino mutineers. Poor New Orleanians lived off and over the lake, squatting in the back swamp well before they were evicted for the construction of parks, wealthy housing developments, and the very flood walls put up to supposedly protect them. As concrete was poured over the debris of the homes of these lakeside fishers, Ileño trappers fired guns upon the closing of the marshland commons by the St. Bernard Parish government. As the ravages of modernity grow louder and the tenor of the Mississippi's yearly floods crescendo, there is no levee they can build that will achieve environmental stasis and preserve linear time. While the city's flood walls keep us somewhat dry sometimes, they obscure what's on the other side. This keeps us feeling safe in ignorance as the water gets higher, and robbed of imagination, unable to dream, a way to live in cycles with the water that is created and taken for time eternal. It is only a matter of time before these walls fall again and linear time washes away. Once more our survival is dependent upon the water and the bonds born of fugitivity. In the not-so-distant future, the river lives. The floodgate holding the river out of its desired path gave way years ago, causing disastrous flooding along the Atchafalaya River. Decades of alarm bells from engineers and scientists never elicited a policy response to allow the Mississippi River out of its prison in a controlled manner. A riverine estuary ebbed and flowed by Wilbancha. Where land had already been forming at a faster rate than anywhere on Earth, the Atchafalaya Delta began to grow by several orders of magnitude. The creative and destructive powers of the river returned in full force. As colonial control slipped, the lands and waters entered a back loop, sending ecosystems into disarray, causing new ecologies to emerge, towns to unsettle, and new cultures to be forged. Although the changing climate has made rains more intense in the watershed, the river's flood crests no longer reach heights that could be only engineered by miles of walls denying it access to its floodplain. Over years of levees crumbling and never being rebuilt, some communities along the river began to build further from its potential wrath, while others chose to stay close to its bounty, building in manners that could accommodate its waters. While some communities have been slower to relinquish their protection, others saw the benefits of letting the river's waters to return to the fields and either demolished the levees or built check dams into them to allow the waters through occasionally. Eroded fields that had suffered for decades of intensive farming were replenished by minerals and organic matter that the water brought. A network 
facilitated by riverine communities, was established to communicate river conditions and share resources. Areas that flooded in a given year received support from communities upriver and downriver that remained dry. The streets of Bulbancha are dense with live oaks, pecan, banana, and persimmon. Perennial crops grow along the neutral grounds where elders tell stories of when there was a port of New Orleans. The population swells in the winter and recedes in the summer, many inhabitants adopting a seasonal migration away from the dangers of hurricane storm surge. Those living in the back swamp travel almost entirely by boat and dwell in houses on stilts. These year-round residents live off the waters and gardens, knowing that in reciprocity there is both giving and taking. So in the second part of the piece, there's this line, as colonial control slipped, the lands and waters entered a back loops. Uh, could you explain a little bit what that refers to? What's the origin of that term? Um, yeah, so back loop refers to the other side of the front loop in like resilient systems thinking. Um, it's what they call like this, the adaptive cycle. Um, so the front front loop is what stasis is expected to be or like normalcy pretty much generally incremental development. So if you think about like succession in a forest or something, moving through gradually through those like primary stages of succession from like, say there's a, a logging event or something while well, you'll have that like low herbaceous species growing back, followed by pioneer woody species and shrubs, followed by more developed woody species and trees onto old growth. The back loop occurs, you know, typically when there's like a substantial disturbance that would cause some kind of shift great enough where it's like a radical change and there isn't like kind of an expected pattern that would be followed after that disturbance. So this comes up a lot um, when thinking about like the changes that could happen in like a climate change scenario or in maybe something, uh, a shift in a geologic formation, like really, really, really substantial um, shifts. So if say a uh, dam is placed someplace, well, the area behind the dam would then enter a back loop because it would become underwater. So it would be like a radical, radical shift and you'd experience a big change very quickly, put kind of simply. Okay, so it's a period in which change is occurring, but it's not necessarily returning to the same steady state as before. It's, it's finding its way to a new front loop. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, may, it might just completely depart from the previous front loop. Sending ecosystems into disarray, causing new ecologies to emerge, towns to unsettle, and new cultures to be forged. There's a, a quick reference, St. Malo and resistance, I guess, in the swamps uh, near Bulbancha, New Orleans. I don't know if you can say any more about what you know about that history. Yeah, so St. Malo is an interesting one where basically there was a Spanish galleon that was mostly crewed by Tagalog or Filipino sailors. And they were there uh, in a kind of indentured servitude and, and um, stage of mutiny. And when they fled the ship, they entered into the marshes in the region south of uh, Lake Bourne. 
And this was a typical haunt of Jean St. Malo or Juan St. Malo and his crew of bandits, uh, maroon bandits that kind of staged uh, occasional raids on the towns around um, New Orleans and including New Orleans. The bandit, uh, Jean St. Malo, was uh, an enslaved individual on a plantation in I believe what is now either St. Charles Parish or St. James Parish, so upriver of New Orleans. And he freed himself um, by deserting the, the plantation and lived out in the marshes and developed quite a, a sizable group of bandits out there. Um, and so eventually, unfortunately, Jean St. Malo was captured by the Spanish government and uh, hung. But the crimes that he was tried for was effectively, it was murder, but he was murdering slave catchers, mostly U.S. slave catchers who were going into the marshes to try and capture Jean St. Malo and his bandit friends. Um, so the town of St. Malo was formed shortly after his, his hanging, and that town existed out in the marshes on houses on stilts above the water. And it existed up until I believe around uh, 1915, 1916, there was a hurricane that came through and uh, wiped it out. But it was um, basically completely outside of state and federal authority for that entire time. It's kind of near like Shell Beach would probably be the closest town I'm, I'm pretty sure there might actually be a town on, on some maps still listed as St. Malo, but every year because of rising seas and uh, extreme land loss, the U.S. Geological Survey removes tons of, of place names just completely off their maps. So you might need to find like a slightly older map just because that the physical land around it is no longer there. This process of capture of the Mississippi River by what's called the Atchafalaya River. Can you say a little bit more about that process or how that happens, when it's supposed to happen, and what it means for the communities in and around these rivers? Obviously, the like the Mississippi River has changed its course since time eternal. And the current formation that it's in, it's called the modern birdsfoot delta. And it's only about 500 years old. And it's artificially maintained there by the system of levees and, and floodgates and such. And so in the 1800s, late 1800s, uh, Henry Shreve, a U.S. Army Corps officer, was really like obsessed with pulling out log jams uh, with the development of like the, uh, the steam engine. He started doing this all over the place. And one place that they did it, it was this massive, massive, like ancient log jam was at Old River, which is upriver of, of Baton Rouge. So they opened that up and then and then the river started changing its flow into the Atchafalaya River. And that slowly kept increasing, the, like the flow rate slowly kept increasing over the decades. And then um, by 1950, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers identified it uh, as a like imminent problem that needed to be addressed. And federal funding was secured to create the Old River Control Structure, which preserves the flow rate 
that was happening when the uh, floodgate was finished, I think in 1963. And that flow rate is 30% of the Mississippi River's total flow goes down the Atchafalaya and the remaining 70% goes down its historic channel or maybe modern channel, we could say is better. The floodgate has been tested a number of times, most substantially probably in 1973 when it was uh, almost basically defeated by the massive flood that happened that year. The floodgate was so damaged that they actually had to create a new floodgate adjacent to the previous floodgate called the auxiliary structure. It's kind of often labeled as America's Achilles heel for that reason. Some like scientists and engineers advocate for what's called a controlled capture, but this really just doesn't get much play in public discourse or the media in some ways, because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. It would like be one thing if it was like right in an urban center or something, but it's, it's out in the country and that often lets it kind of get forgotten about. But a controlled capture would basically be slowly allow water into the Atchafalaya River, allow the Mississippi River to kind of just change its course. And with that, you would also have like a massive social migration where you would start developing a port down what is now the Atchafalaya River and moving in the industrial center from New Orleans to the Atchafalaya River. But there's, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of political will to make that happen. We close out this episode with an upcoming taroscope provided by Siamara Chupaflor. For Gemini, preserve your energy for this enormous transformation that you've been preparing for. Guard yourself from psychic theft by not engaging in empty victories. Know when to walk away as knowing yourself is simply enough. Inner strength will be cultivated through engaging with your inner child. Make sure to play. Eat every in-season fruit and share your bounty with others. Sharing food and good times builds strong bonds. Share sensitive information thoughtfully and cautiously. Messages will be the strongest in the astral plane, so make sure to get good sleep. Let Valerian guide you. Privacy will allow you to fully pursue your passions and more deeply understand your truth. Savor your alone time and a slow reveal of your new self. The Almanac hopes to be back next year. So if you're listening to this and excited to contribute to future issues, send pitches to lobeliacommons at protonmail.com with 2023 Almanac and the pitch topic in the subject by July 31st, 2022. Thank you to all the contributors who sent in and read their pieces from the Almanac for us. You can get a copy of the Almanac and find out more by going to emergentgoods.com. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.